Welcome to Recovery Uncovered, your all things recovery podcast. Recovery Uncovered is produced by MHAB Enterprises, a division of the Northeast Group of Companies located right here in Plattsburgh, New York. I'm your host, Mike Carpenter. Affectionately known as MHAB Mike. And I'm your co-host, Betsy Vicencio. Affectionately known as BV the Normie. We have one goal in these podcasts, and that's not to suck. Thanks for tuning in. Good morning, everybody. I'm MHAB Mike. This is Betsy Vicenzio, also known as BV, as we said in the introduction. And uh, today, we are going to talk about something non-recovery-oriented, Bets. What? As much as, we, as much as our podcast is titled Recovery Uncovered, today we're going to, and we said we would do this in the beginning, and we're going to take some time to talk about how we got here and the war on drugs and some of the big drug dealers who've affected what goes on and why I think some things work well and some things don't work well. And, and so this uh, is going to be like a Mike's opinion show of how the world works? This is, is probably a on? Mike and Betsy opinion show oh. about how the, how the world works. What do you think of that? You're going to let me like have, have an opinion? Well, yeah, <laughs> we'll see how it is first, and then we'll, then we'll make a decision afterwards if that's a Not good that one. Not that we won't disagree about each other's opinions, but I so think I, it's a great idea. I think I'll lay the groundwork by saying this started when I, when I started getting involved in the kind of recovery movement with Spark and some other things. I said I ought to read and, and find out what went on. And, and you know, I, I suppose I was, you know, ignorant like a lot of people to the stuff that's kind of gone on. And, you know, you start with the war on drugs that I think you and I even have a differing of opinion about. Mm-hmm you know when that actually started and you know you look at increased alcohol abuse and you look at the amount of money that's spent on uh, trying to eradicate this and possibly not done the right way and then it leads you into the you know drug dealers and what a drug dealer is and what a drug dealer isn't mm-hmm. and what society believes drug dealers are and you know mass incarceration for people that had drug problems and compare the cocaine and crack epidemic of the 80s to the opiate crisis of the 2000s and why they're so different and you know the similarities and things like that and I figured that it's just worthy of kind of throwing some stuff out there more to get people to think about it and, and you know form their own opinions but just to throw it out there and let people understand what what at least in my opinion and your opinion has kind of really happened over the years with regards to this. That's a you got a lot of things on the uh, on the docket here that you've teed up for us. To, well, I talk uh, really fast, begin. so I'll whip through this stuff really quickly. Well, but remember, we have to you know part of this is to be in a conversation, so we want to help people understand the salient points on both sides of your argument, right? We don't want to be we don't want to be just a one-sided podcast. We want to give it all to them. All right, so let's talk a little bit about just the, I guess, the war on drugs, which is a <laughs> phrase that was, you know, coined many, many years ago. What year do you think um, it was coined? Well, I think that there's a couple of difference of opinions, and I think you're going to tell me that you think it was 1914. And so we're going to let you tell us a little bit about how the war on drugs <laughs> in 1914 started. So 1914. How old? You were like 10 in 1914? <laughs> 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 Makes you 106 today. Betsy, you don't look a day over 105. 100, 117 it makes me. <laughs> awesome. I know. Well, you know, a little hair color, a little Botox. So I read that I was reading. Do you actually do Botox, really? I don't do Botox. Oh, you Can't just you brought tell? it up. I, I know I did. Every just one of these was wrinkles, saying, okay. I've earned everyone. Right. So tell me so about your opinion of the war so on drugs. So I read this book, um, <coughs> or I'm reading this book, Chasing the Screen, the, the search about the, uh, the truth about addiction. And 
and it references um, three key characters. What's that book? The um, it's called Chasing Chasing the Scream. Who wrote it? It was written by Johan Hari, huh. and um, so it tells this story. Um, it tells the story of, of three key players in the in the war on drugs back in the early 19, uh, 1910s. Um, Harry uh, Ainslinger was a, a young man who grew up in you know the Midwest on a farm, and uh, he became the first Federal Bureau of Narcotics leader when that division was um, was virtually non-existent. Um, he was a federal agent. Um, it then speaks about Arnold Rothstein, who was the first uh, drug lord in in Brooklyn um, in the, in that time. Also a big bootlegger. Yeah. And yep. he was he was involved, I think, in the White Sox scandal, the gambling, yes, the, the, yes. the baseball gambling that scandal. He was yeah. in here. Yeah. Listen yeah. to that. And then it talks about Billy Holiday, because there is a connection between the work that um, that Ainslinger did in terms of um, his 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 really brutal attack on Billy Holiday. One for the songs that she sang. Um, two about his his kind of personal um, hatred toward toward people and drugs um, and, uh, and and so in the story it speaks about in 1914 drugs were legal at that point they were controlled you know you could go to any any store coca-cola had cocaine you could go to your doctor and get prescribed heroin drugs were legal and there was some control uh, to them um, but this this Ainslinger guy began this campaign to, uh, to, to eradicate drugs. I mean, there's actually language in here that speaks about the war on drugs and, uh, and, and how um, many of the, the, the opiates that were used back then, the cocaines and the heroin, really um, fell into the hands of people like Arnold Rothstein because they made them illegal. They made it illegal for doctors to continue to prescribe drugs. And so then it ended up in the hands of the, of the true drug lords, the illegal roots. And that's when it really began to ratchet itself up. <clears throat> so those of us that like living in more modern day America, we recognize that the war on drugs probably at least, uh, and I agree with you, I haven't read the book, so I'm not disputing that it happened back then. It's a little I'm just saying that in the, you know, in the early 1970s, when the Drug Enforcement Administration was actually created. And, you know, Richard Nixon professed that we have to do something about eradicating drugs. And then, you know, most of the presidents after that and the administrations can continue to take it. And, you know, the initial thought back in the 70s was this has to be criminal. It, it's, it's a criminal thing. Uh, there wasn't the understanding of addiction being a disease yet and a, a, a chronic health crisis as opposed to a legal crisis. So they really fought this from the, the angles of it's criminal. We have to put people in jail for doing this, users, sellers, the whole nine. And, you know, the, the Drug Enforcement Administration that's now been around for 50, almost 50 years, I think people who work in those fields really try hard to do the right thing. But I think that the overall leadership and the plan of those things may not have been thought out properly and continues possibly not to be thought out properly. You know, if you think about it, the DEA carries a $3 billion a year budget. It's 11,000 employees that work for that organization, of which better than half of them are support staff. You know, so you have to ask yourself, and, and the drug problem in the United States continues to rise. It, it's not going down. So. I, 
and again, I, I, I try to tread a little bit lightly in doing this because I'm not trying to be critical of actual agents that are on the street trying to, to do this, they're doing their job. It's the overall plan of it. Like we, it's, it's like in business, okay, we're gonna throw more money at something that's losing money, like that's just bad business. Right, and right. so we continue to throw money at this without stopping and looking at it and going, this is a public health crisis more than it's a criminal crisis. And, can, I, and, can I ask you a question? Yeah. This is, I, mean, I think this is maybe philosophical, probably without a, a true answer, but do you think drugs, if you go back to kind of the beginning, I mean, ha drugs have not always been a public health crisis, have they? Do you think that it's, I mean, there's got to have been an evolution of, of drugs going from being some type of a, a standard medicinal type of, of, of solution or, or aid to, to, to medical problems and then escalating to the point that, that drugs have become a public health crisis, right? Well, I, I think there's, a, there, yes, and, and there's probably a variety of different things that go into why that happened, but just, just take marijuana. You know, just talk about marijuana specifically. In the 1960s, when marijuana became really prevalent, the amount of can you know the amount of THC in marijuana back then was was very low. It was it was very low. So what's happened, and especially in American society, every time we f invent something, the the next generation and the generations after are always trying to make it better, make it better, sure. make it better. Well, sure. that's no different with drugs. So people are looking at it, going, well, if the THC content is only one percent, how do we get the THC content to be two percent, five percent, eight percent? So what's happened is as the drug uh, time has gone on, the drugs have become more powerful, more addictive. They, you know, there's a wider spread of it. Not not to uh, downplay the fact that. The whole idea of addiction, and remember when Rochelle Gregory was here a couple of weeks ago, she talked about you know trauma, and you know does trauma fuel that? So you have a lot of reasons why these things are fueled, and and you know very few of the drugs, in my opinion, that are out there, are 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 recreational drugs. Like there are not a lot of recreational cocaine users. There are not a lot of recreational IV heroin users. You know there are recreational marijuana smokers, just like there are recreational drinkers. Those two yeah. drugs I can buy into, but the hardcore drugs there it's just not you, you know you're not going over to somebody's house and and you know oh well let's do a couple of lines of cocaine when we watch the movie that's not what typically happens with regards to to those drugs so I I think that the, the prevalence of those and the reasons that people use them are, are different than maybe they were you know back in the free era of the 60s when you know drugs were first coming onto the scene and so the answer for the government was stop this like put it put an end to this stop the revolt stop the and put and an so end to the people that are using 100%. put an end to the people that are selling let's yep. you know let's cut off let's yep. let's cut the people off that are that yep. are using the drugs because they're as criminal as the people that are selling right yep. because it's illegal is that right. what your exactly premise exactly what you're right. the you know mission. and then and then you go through so you, you go through the 70s and and the 70s is kind of that free time and then you get into the late 70s and early 80s and cocaine was really probably the drug that changed American society from a drug standpoint in, in my opinion first off the money involved in the cocaine trade is is astronomically high and it was really high back in the days I mean you were paying a lot of money for a gram of cocaine it was really only for the elite people movie stars you know people who had a lot of money to be able to do it and you know when cocaine started coming from South America you know and the cartels first started back in the the 80s uh, it was a different business and and you know we we compare 
people don't like to compare the opiate crisis to the to the cocaine crisis and the, the cocaine crisis in the 80s that flourished into the crack cocaine crisis really happened as a result of how do how do, drug dealers were looking at it going how do I increase my margins on cocaine sales how do I get this into the hands of less fortunate people who don't have enough money to pay for it and the answer was crack cocaine Crack cocaine allowed them to cook cocaine into a smokable form and sell it for as little as three or four or five dollars for one rock. Whereas before that, when you were buying powder cocaine, it was in the hundreds of dollars. So once you begin to fuel the crack cocaine epidemic, you, you, you get a way to get cocaine into the hands of the sure. masses that you were not able to do before then. So it was a conscious choice that people made to do this. and and. <laughs> Crack, crack is like the, the Walmart of 100%. You know, as, as sad as that sounds, and the oh. truth is that, that it really destroyed the inner cities of America more than anything else. And so what happened in the 80s when the crack cocaine epidemic was raging, you had all of these drug dealers who were making tons and tons and tons of money at the higher levels. And you can go down through the list, and I can't name them all, but you think about you know Pablo Escobar, and I, I think the woman's name was Giselle Blanco, and Frank Lucas, and, and Freeway Ricky Ross, and all of these people that became you know huge drug dealers. Meanwhile, all the people who set below them were paying these huge prices for what amounted to minor drug offenses. And they're just trying to eradicate that. So that's where a lot of the, the prison population from the 80s came from. It came from this whole idea that let's arrest the crack sellers who are selling $5 rocks on a street corner. But again, we're not doing anything against the bigger people. We ultimately went you know, to war with the bigger people too and, and caught and arrested a lot of those. So You know what's interesting in the in this book, they talk about this Arnold Rothstein who yeah. appears to have been the first drug lord back yeah. then and how he he had, and I think many drug dealers through the errors of time have had law enforcement and judges and political officials really in their back pocket and were able to avoid any yeah. type of criminal prosecution. I mean, I think that's been kind of a... a well, it was the same thing with the cartels in South America, Mexico and Colombia. They were all, you know, they're paying off government officials with more money than the government officials ever yeah. had just to turn their head and look the other way. And you know, it's funny because part of this is gonna lead into the opiate crisis and what I blame the opiate crisis on and some of that stuff. But if you think about it, Pablo Escobar, who probably is the most famous cocaine dealer, like most people know him, uh, you know, know the name if you say it. You know, Pablo Escobar gave millions of dollars to poor people in his country. Like he, as much as I'm not trying to defend him, he was a ruthless, murderous drug dealer. That's what he was, but he was philanthropic. Like he did a lot of things to help people in his own area that were much less fortunate. And he gets branded as this ruthless, murderous drug dealer. Now fast forward to the 2000s, and in 1996, this wonderful family from Connecticut called the Sackler family that owns Purdue Pharmaceuticals invented OxyContin. And OxyContin is an opiate that's a time-released opiate that really fueled the opiate crisis. And they knew it when they designed it, they knew how addictive it was, and they marketed it to people to the point where they were giving billions of these pills out over the course of a five-year period. Billions. Well, they marketed it to physicians and healthcare physicians professionals, and distributors right? so and all that. So if you th if you want to make a, so I'm going to make the comparison, and El Chapo 
Guzman, Pablo Escobar, they all figured out a way to make cocaine. They had land, they devised the stuff, they bought everything they needed, they made cocaine. Then they opened up a distribution network with other people who didn't necessarily work for them, who distributed their narcotics, came into the United States, killed thousands of people violently and drug overdose-wise, and those people either died a violent death in the drug war or they went to jail for the rest of their life. <clears throat> and they were branded as ruthless drug dealers. Yep. Now you have these eight members of the Sackler family that own Purdue Pharmaceutical who have museum wings named after them and school wings named after them and hospital wings named after them and they have easily been responsible for at least the same number of deaths as any of these ruthless more. drug dealers. It's not more. And my point about all this is that those people deserve to be in jail just as much as El Chapo or Pablo Escobar or any of the other people. And we as a society don't do that because we're afraid to go after this elite class that has a lot of money. The Sackler family made 13 billion dollars selling Oxycontin. 13 billion. And when they knew the shit was coming down around them, they took the majority of that money and moved it offshore. Like that is a, about as criminal and ruthless as you can be. I don't know how you don't, how people don't look at that as being as criminal and ruthless as anybody else. And they left this wake and trail of people in their past who struggle with addiction, lost family members, life was changed forever, and these people still won't take responsibility for it. You know, one of the biggest distributors of their drug is a company out of Rochester, New York. And the gentleman's name who was the president of the company is Lawrence Dowd and he had a compliance officer. These, the compliance officer came to the president of the company and said, we're distributing millions of pills to a town of 5,000 people. Something's wrong here. And the president said, we're not going to do anything about it. Meanwhile, the president's pay increased by 2,000% over a four-year period of time. Like, think about that. So, so what he effectively said is, we're dealing drugs, we're burying and killing people, but my salary's going up, so we're going to do it. So this guy then goes to court in New York City, and, and it's great. They bring him up on big charges. But as of the most recent stuff I could find, they're now likely going to settle for a fine and no jail time. And I go, how is that possible? How how, is that like, fair? ask yourself, as people watching this podcast, how is that possible? And we should be outraged by that stuff. We, we absolutely, where was the DEA? 10,000 people work for the DEA. Why were they not at, at Purdue Pharmaceuticals going, what the hell are you doing? Because like, how were they not investigating it? So think about because this. Because it's Th illegal. Think about this. Drug. We have a guy that works for us, gentleman that works for us, got involved in the meth trade. He was facing seven to 20 years in federal prison because he drove to Vermont, our neighboring state, and bought Sudafed at three different drugstores. They charged him with interstate trafficking of precursors to make methamphetamine. Seven to 20 years he was facing. These guys are buying all the precursors to make one of the most dangerous <laughs> drugs all over the world and nobody cares. How is that pie? I just, for the well, life of me, don't, don't understand it. Clearly people care, but I think it's a, I think it's a really, I, I, I think philosophically and, and, um, and, and technically speaking, I think you are 100% right. It is criminal what's been allowed under the guise of it being legal 
it being allowed because there were supposedly all of these proven medicinal benefits to the drugs that these fam this family was creating, these manufacturers were creating. So, so the question. So now we've laid out the groundwork, and you can compare the the cocaine crisis to the opiate crisis. And and the other part of this is, you know, make no mistake. And and I'm not trying to fight on any racial lines or do any of that. But the truth is, the crack cocaine epidemic of the 1980s got swept under the rug in large part because it was affecting really poor inner-city black kids. That's who it was affecting. All of a sudden, the opiate crisis comes and it starts killing upper-middle-class white kids and wealthy white sure. kids, and everybody wants to talk about it. And it really is a shame that as a society, we still don't want to recognize that. And this is not a program on race or any of that, but it's truthful that that's exactly what has happened. And, and I think that even if you were a, a, a person of color, you would go, well, I'm at least happy they're doing something about it. But yes, why were they not doing something about this back in the 80s? And and we continue to perpetuate this where we don't ever hold anybody accountable. Like I look at the DEA and I go, shouldn't you have to answer for the fact that your budget is $3 billion, you have 10,000 employees, and the drug crisis is getting worse? Like shouldn't somebody have to say, okay, something we're doing isn't working? What was the, like, what was the thing I, uh, I don't know, I was... Some who what it was uh, uh, Nancy Reagan was she just say no? Oh, just say no, yeah, <laughs> just say no, lady. <laughs> just say no. <laughs> yes, L lovely lady, and uh -huh. you know, love the Reagans. But I think that from a from a policy standpoint, I think that politicians, our, our political infrastructure, knows that there is a drug problem. But I don't think anybody. I mean, and I think that people that serve in politics stand to be, in many instances, some of the brightest people that we have, and they do assemble a bunch of really smart people around them. But I think this problem is just—I mean, it's just so ingrained into our society. I mean, how how do you propose we solve it? Well, I will tell you that the part of that that I disagree with, and I'll I'll leave apart the side whether I think the brightest people are in politics or not. That's for another show. But I will absolutely tell you that. I think as long as there's this much money in it, you, you, in the drug culture, you can't stop it. If you went and looked at Purdue Pharma's books or McKesson's books or any of these other organizations that were involved in distributing this, you're going to find that they were large donors, probably to both parties. Yep. The truth is, if you yep. look at the history of the DEA that. since the 70s up till now, it's grown under every administration. Sure. It's not grown more under the Republicans or the Democrats. They're all they're all doing it. And and my issue is just very simply: Are there better ways that we can be spending that money to really eradicate? this problem. You know, they continue to cut prevention dollars into, you know, for kids that are school age right. in the interest of criminalizing it. We have two million incarcerated people in this country or some number close to that, of which 200,000 of them are direct drug charges and probably another 75% of them are in some way, whether it's, you know, if it's burglary, it was probably to support a drug habit. If it's a violent crime, it was probably, well, you're under the influence. So it's rampant in there. And, and so you look at all these things and go, the answer can't be build a bigger drug enforcement administration, build more prisons, put more cops on the street, and continue to honor Purdue Pharma and McKesson and all these other companies as leaders in the pharmaceutical industry. Like, if that's the answer, we are never going to eradicate this problem. If those are the things, we, the best thing that the government could do right now is put every one of those Sackler people in jail, or at very least put them up on a public trial that the rest of us can watch to know if what they did was actually illegal. Maybe it wasn't. They deserve the same rights that everybody else gets. They deserve to have a trial by a jury of their peers. But damn it, they deserve to have a trial. 
You know, these people were peddling one of the most dangerous drugs ever created, and they were doing it making billions of dollars, not millions, billions of dollars for their family. And now they're on TV publicly denouncing that, you know, one of the guys, and, and I coincidentally agree with him, one of the sons said, this is unfair to my children. And I agree with him. His children shouldn't have to pay the price for what he did. But he should pay the price for what he did. Sure. You know, if he stood up and said, I'm 100% responsible for this. Please don't take it out of my kids. I like to think most of American society would say, you know what? His kids didn't do anything wrong. But if you're going to stand up there and parade your kids off to private school and not take responsibility, well, then wait a minute. So you're suggesting that they knew 100%. about the... Uh, what? What makes you say that? I mean, I, I mean, and, and I'm not saying I disagree. And what yeah. makes you know? Let's let's give them the benefit of the doubt. Let's say in 1996, when they invented OxyContin, they didn't know how addictive it was. They really didn't believe it was addictive. They believed the time release would stop it from being addictive, which coincidentally I just don't believe. But let's give them the benefit of the doubt and say that at some point in 2008 when they're delivering hundreds of millions of pills and people are dying at alarming rates in this country who have been hooked on OxyContin and can't get it anymore, at some point somebody in their company should have looked at it and said, oh, okay. So even if you give them the benefit of the doubt and say the first 10 years, not their fault. So here's first 10 years, the not question. their fault. Is it, so they're responsible for producing and providing it to the healthcare system. Is it the healthcare mm -hmm. system's fault for dispensing? So I, I will give you the analogy that I think this is exactly the same as the housing crisis that happened in the mid 2006, 7, 8, when the housing bubble burst. My assessment of when the housing bubble burst is everybody was guilty of it. Realtors were selling homes that they knew were valued at three mm -hmm. times what the cost yep. was. Mortgage brokers were writing loans for people that they knew had no business paying it. Even the people who were working for $12 an hour knew they couldn't afford a $350,000 mm -hmm. home, but they were buying it anyway because some Somebody mortgage broker told them, don't worry about it, you can just walk away from it when you can't pay for it anymore. So everybody played a role in that. I believe the same thing with this. Everybody plays a role in this, up to it, including the, the addict on some level. Even though it's an illness, yes, they're all we're all responsible for this on some level. The problem in society is we continue to blame the people who are downstream and not the people who sit at the top, except when they're actually criminals like Pablo Escobar. Like my my point is not to be so critical. I'm not really trying to put drug dealers on any pedestal. I'm trying to say to people that my personal belief is that people like the Sackler family, all of their lawyers, all of the people who sat in decision-making roles, all of their board, McKesson, uh, I could go down the list, I can't think of anybody else, so I'm only citing McKesson, but all of these people who distributed their lawyers, their lobbyists, they're all guilty of this. They're just as guilty as Pablo Escobar is. And maybe they didn't do it with a gun or a machete or whatever the case is, but they're just as guilty of destroying the lives of people in American society, and they should be held to the same account as the other people. And they're even bigger criminals than the, the nickel bag drug dealer who's doing 20 years in prison because he got caught with five rocks of cocaine in the you know late 80s or early 90s. They're even way worse than that because that guy was just selling rocks of cocaine so he could continue to get high or pay his rent so he had a, a bed to sleep in at night. And that's my issue. It's not... It,
I think you're just, you, what, you're, what you're really saying is that the playing field needs to be level when we look at the facts about drugs, be they legal or illegal, and the impact that they've had on our society. Right. And I think you're 100% right to say the cocaine epidemic was huge right. in the 80s and it really destroyed a bunch of lives. But I think if we do a comparative, if we do the, the what was happening then to what's happening now, I think the inflation rate has far exceeded what would be normal with what's happened in the opioid crisis. And I think that the, I think that the, the derivative of what's happened since opiates have really become you know, kind of popular, the whole designer or, or derivatives that have happened are just so dangerous. I mean, we've really yeah. escalated this problem to a place that, that the, the danger you know, zones are just bigger. You asked me a few minutes ago, you know, what could be done? And so, you know, y you can just think of some things and you can say, okay, here's how you can start to restore faith in the American public that you really do give a shit about people who are dying of this. And this isn't only for the addiction crisis, this can be used across the board. If you're a politician that ever took a dime from anybody who was in a position of leadership in any of the companies that were responsible for this crisis, you ought to make a public donation to some charity that's helping people that are addicts, period. Make Just, just come out and say, I took $1,000 from McKesson to help with my campaign and I recognize today that they're criminals just like everybody else and I'm gonna make a personal $5,000 donation to the family of somebody whose kid died of a heroin overdose. You know, that's one thing to do. For Families like the Sackler family and these other companies to be able to store their money offshore and provide, uh, file for bankruptcy protection after their money is moved offshore, everything ought to be confiscated. You know what they did with El Chapo when they, when they arrested him? They confiscated everything the guy owns. That's what they do when they arrest drug dealers in the United States. Your home, your cars, your guitar, your everything is confiscated. Why did the Sacklers have anything? Why has all that stuff not been confiscated? Where is the Drug Enforcement Administration to stand up and say, we handled this poorly. We will never handle this poorly again. Any pharmaceutical company that is going to produce and sell pharmaceuticals in the United States is going to have an embedded DEA agent at their office making sure that what they're doing is legal. How hard would that be? 10,000 agents. Embed an agent at their office that says he's going to be there to monitor what goes on, to make sure that there's nothing criminal going on here. Like, there are so many simple things that so can be done. I absolutely love and appreciate your passion about this. And, and the only part that, to me, that's just, just a stretch is that I don't know at what point what Purdue Pharmaceuticals was doing went from being, I think we're trying to help eradicate pain. I think we're trying to help people heal and be cured from, from chronic pain or, or to being suddenly the, fl the switch flip to what they're doing is illegal. It's very easy. It's very easy to find out. Purdue Pharmaceuticals, open up your books for how you sold OxyContin because I can assure you that it's not going to be they sold 100 pills this year and 110 the next year. You're going to see that they sold 100, 100, 100, a million. So you're going to see that switch when it happened. You will absolutely see when that became, a, when, when marketing took off and they started producing this stuff. So there's the other piece. Give us some public transparency. Just open up your books about OxyContin. Say we recognize that it's a problem. Here's what we did. So... How hard would that be? It, I, don't think, I, I don't think it would be hard at all. I'm the CFO of our company. Open up our books. Absolutely. I'm, 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 I get you when you say that. I'm going to go back to the piece about this, and I, my experience has to do with my one daughter, Santana, 
who um, developed a, a chronic pain condition out of the blue at age 11. I remember the exact date that it happened, and she ended up in the hospital. And you knocked her off a horse. Oh, this Isn't was that what happened. <laughs> no, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> now not you're responsible the, for the problem with <laughs> both of your children, not just one of them. She fell off the horse. I just didn't give her medical treatment for a day. That's a completely different story of me being, yeah, another disappointment as a, as a parent. Another parent fail that I've done. <laughs> and your daughters still love you. I know. And right? they let you take care of the granddaughter. That's amazing. Well, I haven't killed them, thankfully. So knock on knock. So here we are in the hospital, and your kid is in your kid is in serious and significant pain, and the only thing that abates her pain, that gives her any ounce of relief, is a derivative of oxycotton or morphine. That was the only drug that they were able to give her that gave her any relief. And and I remember thinking as a parent when we left the hospital, I'm like, well, I'm not going to make my 11 year old a, a drug addict, so we don't want that. But this pain continued. I mean, I don't know if you remember that month. I Mike, do. But I mean, I do. it was horrible. So I guess my you know my piece to my piece about this balance between drugs that can 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 create relief, and then what's the how do you how do you create the balance between between medicinal purposes for something that abate pain to 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 then stopping over the flow of drugs that then kill millions of people in society over a six-year period of time six-year period i think from 2012 to 2018 somewhere in that range six-year period of time purdue pharma put 13 billion oxycontin pills on the street every year if you take 330 million as the american population that's 38 pills for every single American for six years, every year for six years. You can't tell me that somebody who's supposed to be really bright running a multi-billion dollar company isn't smart enough to go, we might be over-prescribing this. <laughs> that might be too, we, well, we manufactured a few too many. Well, exactly. <laughs> I mean, you don't, you, you know. Unless, you, of course, their intention was to get Oxycontin in the hands of every American and it became, their, it became their everyday go-to drug. This is how you deal. This, this book talks about the fact that in the early 1900s, um, as we became a more industrial society, that, that our lives became more anxiety-ridden. You, know you, right? you, you know, you talk about, I get really fired up by this, but we talk about these people as being bright people. And, you know, so you look at Purdue Pharma, and obviously the Sackler family, these people are not dummies. They're smart, they're educated people, they, they're, they're, in, they're, they're gifted, they, they're smart people. You can't have the right to use that smarts to get ahead in the world, but then when something happens and you realize that you're caught doing something wrong, all of a sudden plead ignorance. There's no part of right, me that right. believes that. You know, right. Take Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz last week flew to Cancun, Mexico, or whatever the case is, and you know, well his well his state's falling well, apart. State Ted no Cruz power, is one no of heat. the one of the most powerful people in America. He's one of the 100 U.S. senators. He ran for president. And if we use your theory that people who are in elected office are pretty bright, Ted's a lawyer. He obviously 
obviously is is not it. Whether you agree with his politics or not, I'm not saying that. He's obviously a smart guy. Yet his excuse was, I didn't think about it. I, I can't buy that from people like that. If that's if you can't realize that while well, your state is falling down around you, that you leaving with your daughters to go to Cancun, Mexico is a bad idea, you do not deserve to hold public office. Like, how can you possibly be? Like, that just is, is absolutely foreign to me. And so what it tells me is that they're just being dishonest about it. For the Sackler family to say, we didn't realize, can't be truthful. That's not it's there. Not, that is absolutely it, not there. Of course it is. That's their defense. Of course it is. They did not realize how addictive this was and what it was doing. A hundred percent. Well, they clearly had bad research. Well, of course they I did. Mean, isn't that all of what uh, pharmaceuticals are supposed to do? They spend all of their time ask, doing research. You would research, ask research. yourself. So now what they do is they hire a team of high-powered lawyers. They continue to get continuances of, of this hey, stuff. They pay, a, they pay a fine that amounts to a low percentage of their actual profits. The fine... I, I couldn't find this information, but it would be interesting, and maybe I'll try to look. Where did all the money that Purdue Pharma got fined go to? You know, according to one of the things I read online, like half of it went to the Justice Department. Why isn't all the money that Purdue Pharma was fined going to the opiate crisis? Like, how, it, I don't, I, really? Help to help like, solve the problem that you created. Good sure. God, split this all around the country and give it to all the communities that had people that died of the opiate crisis. Give it to the families. If you had a, a son or a daughter or a husband or wife die of an opiate crisis, you're going to share in the $8 billion that Purdue Pharma put out equally. No administrative fees. Their fine no, just, was $8 billion? $8 billion, I think, was the fine, yeah. Just Pennies. It's pennies for a company like that. Pennies so, so, so here's. Can I ask you a question? Yes. In your in your research, did did the federal government sponsor at all the development of these drugs? I know that we do. We we spend we as a as a, a country we spend money on development of of certain uh, drugs or research for certain drugs. Do you know? I couldn't this find that. This, this was a, this was Purdue? a derivative of oxycodone. And oxycodone was discovered by some guy 20 years previous or maybe even more than that in, I think, England or somewhere. And then what the what Purdue did is they took it and they made it a time-released capsule. That's what OxyContin is, so that you could take it and over the course of time it would go into your body. So it wasn't just a one pill. It so do a long-term uh, effect of the supposedly yeah. drag out the long-term benefit of this this. So I'm not sure that the government had a hand in it. I would venture a guess that somewhere along the way there were tax breaks or incentives or something for Purdue to, you know, had lobbied Congress at some point to be able to, I, I would guess. I, I don't know that to be the case. but and, and I think that, you know, when you think about it, it, it there's a lot of well-meaning people. Like, like, I do believe, at least when they were looking at this originally, I'm like you. They were... It starts out as a noble goal. Yep. There's, there's. Yep. I think a lot of people who become criminals start out with a very noble goal, <laughs> but when the money becomes so prevalent, it, this is what happens. And and you know when you're making this big money and you can justify in your head that I'm not really doing anything wrong and everybody in your organization is making money, that's when it becomes easy to do that. And that's the issue that I have with this. You know that if I were going to give you one difference between the Sackler family, McKesson, all those people, and Pablo Escobar. Pablo Escobar was a drug dealer from day one. He knew exactly what he was doing. He was trying to profit off, off exploiting people. He, he was. 
Do I think that when the Sackler family opened Purdue Farm and they set out to do this, that their goal was to make everybody a heroin addict or an opiate? Of course not. I don't, I don't think that. But somewhere along the way, that switched, and it makes them just as ruthless as that person who started out doing the same thing. Do you think Pablo Escobar had as many options as the Sackler family course had not. for careers? Of course and, and I'm And I'm not saying that Pablo Escobar was not, you no. know, a, a violent, terrible, horrible human being, but, you know, this plays into the whole story. Of, of, of poverty or, or, or third world countries that don't have the same opportunities that we have in America. And I think it's incredibly sad that as a somewhat advanced and developed society that we have very large families like the Sackler family yep. that have chosen this path on how they're going to create their legacy um, with all of the options that we have, all of the potential good that's available to an organization of that size with the money behind them yep. that they have. I also think that Pablo Escobar at some point in his life had an opportunity to do something different than what he was doing. Yep. Um, you know, because money changes everything and you have to decide if money changes you for the good or if money changes you for the bad. Um, and You're right. If you think about, you know, drug dealers, just in the world of drug dealing, you know, ironically, if you were going to do it and you were going to be smart, you'd do it, you'd make a couple million dollars and then you'd t stop doing it and put your money into a legitimate business and try to do it. However, the money is so easy, right. the business becomes so easy to run that they're everything. drawn by by that. Money Not to mention that the lifestyle is a part of it. You know, it, it's, I, you know, for me, if I wanted to do anything today, it was to draw the similarities between the fact that that guy who's in jail today for selling five, you know, little rocks of crack cocaine is probably less dangerous and less of a criminal than the people who were making and selling Oxycontin over the years and, and turning and looking the other way. And it even goes a step further and becomes more egregious when you realize that in the past few years, and you're on the hospital board, so you may be aware of this, in the past few years, the medical community has become much more guarded about prescribing Oxycontin. Oh, yes. So now you have to test for it and you have to, to make sure. So what's happened is we're giving you an unlimited supply of Oxycontin so you can get hooked on it and use it. And then we're going to tell you, oh, no, you can't have that anymore. So now you have to do something. So what do you do? You go out and find street drugs. Sure. So now you start shooting heroin, using dirty needles. You don't know what you're putting in your system. HIV runs rampant. Hepatitis C runs rampant. Like there are these myriad of other problems that are created by these people who put out a drug that was this kind of going to save the world kind of drug. It, it's, it's a maddening it's a maddening, indefensible position for people, many people, who haven't done much to take responsibility. And, and you know what? I think that it's, it's, it's high time in this country that things like this do not continue to go unpunished. And it has to be the people who have done it have to take responsibility for it. And you know what? That's probably never going to happen. My hat is off to Miss James, who's a, the Attorney General of New York State, who went after the family. There's some other Attorneys General in the United States that have went after Purdue Pharma. Um, and good for them. They, they should do that. And that's not easy. That It's not easy to be in that position sure, and say, I'm going to take on. It's probably unpopular if you're, right. if you're a I'm going to take on one of these huge families yeah. that's a, a corporate donor to you know my campaign and other things like that. But if we don't do that, how are we ever going to begin to eradicate this problem? And, and, you know, the other thing for me is I just really would like to see us try to take a different approach. And that's not designed to say treatment facilities aren't doing a great job and law enforcement isn't. They, they work their ass off yeah. trying, trying to do this. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm saying that it's quite possible that 
the philosophy of how we're doing this might not be right. And that's only evidenced by very limited basic knowledge that we're spending more money and the problem is getting worse. And, and from a private business person, and you're a finance person, if you're running a business that's bringing in less money and you're spending more to bring in less, you're not going to be in business for very long. Like it doesn't work out. So if you think about it in terms of that, if, if we're escalating the crisis and we're spending more money on it, something doesn't add up. Like it's not working. And so let's look at doing something that would be different. And, and you know, could I sit here and give you the exact answers of what that is? No, I, I, I don't know that I have them today, but I certainly think we can at least be looking at it going, what can we do differently? And I gave a couple of suggestions, you know, the idea of having the DEA involved with the FDA and what legal drugs are and how they get distributed and that stuff. Think about it. If somebody was just reviewing how many of these Oxycontin pills Purdue Pharma was distributing, don't you think somewhere along the way they would have said, hmm, 38 pills for every American might just be a little up. much. Yeah. Like it would have been that easy. I think that, you know, of all the things, and, and once again, you know, with your passion, I, I love I love the fact that you really espouse what, what appears to be fair at a very basic common sense and common courtesy level, which is, you know, that's really what we're what we're talking about. It just it needs to feel fair. Right. And and the topic that you bring up today, it really just kind of it, it just reeks of of there is a uh, there is a a, a a predominance in our society that for people that have and live yeah. in this higher um, upper echelon that they're not as responsible for their behavior or their actions right. as people that are just regular average Americans that may have 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 committed some some act of poor judgment or broken a law that that the, the the penalties are just not as severe for people of of of, of greater it's wealth the and the, and there's a there's a lack of fairness a lack of parity in our society because of that and, and it's a classic it's just the classic double standard and and it's the classic double standard that's cost a lot of people their lives mm -hmm. and a lot of people you know it's wrecked families forever you know our our very good friend Ed Kirby whose son you know died of a of a heroin overdose started it this exact way cut his fingers in a cooking accident wound up on oxy and then ultimately switched to heroin when he couldn't get the prescriptions for oxy and died at 21 or 22 years old and that family is forever changed like they are forever changed and Ed does Ed and Ann both do great things in this community really to, to help but their life is forever changed and 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 that's that's one that likely didn't have to happen like we could have prevented that one and some other ones and there but for the grace of of God and a bunch of really great people would have been me and Bridget I mean yeah. Bridget with a with a, a torn ACL common industry or a common industry mm -hmm. a common injury for teenage girls who got had her first uh, her first exposure to right. um, you know to painkillers and it really was her launching off and, point and you know if you think about the whole Purdue Pharma and McKesson and those guys if if we put some of those people in jail if we actually held them accountable if they forfeited everything that they owned or that they made off this drug trade 
what that will do two years from now when the next company comes on and has this next drug, they're going to go, oh, let's make sure that we really do our research and that what we're saying is truthful because now there's precedent that says if we don't, we could wind up losing everything and going to jail. But if you don't do that, what prevents the next guy from doing it? You know, what What stops that from happening? It's, it's the same thing with the, you go back to the housing market, use that analogy. There's rumor on the street now, and I'm not a finance guy, that some of those credit derivative swaps and things like that are being manufactured manufactured again. And, and yep. so why is that? That's because none of those people paid any real price back then. So why are they worried about it? Like at some point you have to start holding people well, accountable. We bailed out a bunch of people. You know, exactly. Yeah. So that's my, you know, that's my, my stance for today. And I, I really don't have a, I don't, I don't know the Sackler family. I don't know. They're probably nice people. They, I, I, I have no personal ax to grind, but I really do think that if we're ever going to really begin to eradicate the problem of drug addiction in this country, we have to start looking at it with a totally different eye than what we've been looking at it. You have to look at things with a radical change and not just continue to say, well, throw more money at it. You know, more money is not necessarily the answer. You know, in fact, the people who are in recovery in large part, and I'll close with this, the people who are in recovery in large part are in recovery in organizations that don't cost them anything. Right. Like it, it really is not. The most it's successful not programs out there are the ones, ones that, that, that are, don't that, cost that, them that anything. Are not, are not funded. They're you know they're right. volunteer, peer-based organizations where you know if you want my community. real opinion about the way that we should be focused on the drug problem in this in this country, we should be focused on first and foremost prevention at a very young age. Yeah. What do we do with kids at a very young age to get them not to start? And we should be throwing way more money at that than throwing at, at arresting people. The second piece is treatment. What do we do to increase the time that people can be in treatment, increase you know treatment value, that those types of things. And lastly is the law enforcement piece, you know, not the other way around where we continue to, you know, throw money at the criminalization of it more than anything else. Like that's how we need to begin to look at this and eradicate the problem. And I think if you bring somebody on who understands budgets more than me, they would probably say that, yes, when we do cuts, we cut things like childhood funding and, and stuff like that. And, you know, daycare, you can't get, you know, qualified daycare because we can't pay. There's just a myriad of providers right. enough for anybody to want to be in that right. business. There's a myriad of issues that go on that. Y y y so it's interesting because, you know, healthcare, we talk about this being a healthcare crisis. Healthcare is an industry realizes because we as a society end up spending the most amount of money when people are at their oldest ages with the highest degree of acuity in their sicknesses and we realize that if we invest more of that right. money early on to help work with people on prevention to connect them to primary care to help them understand and educate uh, about health issues early on to do prevention and preventative care when the acuity of somebody's sickness is so much smaller than when it becomes a full-blown problem that we are going to bend the curve on, on health issues in our society and I think that that same philosophy completely equates to what you're talking about how do we front load that money into things that are tied to prevention why can't we why don't we recraft how how law enforcement deals with um, with drug prevention um, and education right. earlier on and what do we do when people are in the early stages of exposure to right. drugs and alcohol and how do we handle that from a really trying to change um, I think you're on to something. 
Well, you know, I, I, like I said when we started this podcast, this one wasn't necessarily recovery-oriented, <laughs> but we said in the beginning when we did this that we were going to talk about a lot of different topics, and, you know, this one is, is you know, pretty near and dear to my heart, and I, I am a, a, you know, working-class guy who's had some success in my life, but I've always believed that, you know, the biggest problem in this country is class more than anything else, and that I think the rules are different for, you know, people that sit in positions of, of more power than the less fortunate, and, and you know, know that's just wrong it shouldn't be that way we're all just human beings and that's not to we should not penalize people for making it in America we shouldn't people should be able to do that that's a the beautiful thing of this country but boy oh boy you can't make it by exploiting people and being on the backs of other people and then say oh well I wasn't doing anything wrong and you know today I wore this shirt today I don't know Telly can you get a shot of this shirt this is my I'm a freaking ray of sunshine today, so I'm sure that the way that I came off today makes everybody think that I'm a freaking ray of sunshine today. Yeah. Um, today, actually, I do think that you are the shirt, a ray of sunshine. I think it applies. I think, that, uh, I think that it works for you today. So, you know, hopefully what we talked about today, you know, informs some people and at very least got you thinking a little bit about the stuff that goes on, you know, in the world and that if we... We can't just expect people who sit in positions of power to be the people who make change. You know, those of us that sit down here at just the regular level, we can be change makers. We can say the things that need to be said and do the things that need to be done to make the world a better place to live in. And that that's exactly what we're trying to do. I don't have vendettas with people. I'm just trying to say, you know, let's make sure that we're doing right. I would, uh, do you have any closing remarks that you want to make? So my only thoughts are, you know, money and power changes people and it changes things and you have to decide I think at what point if you're going to use your money and your power for good right and and you can I mean there's an opportunity always to really really do good and change and change the world I, I love that thought that regular people can be change makers. you know there was a great article and I'll close with this about Purdue Farm and the Sackler family and it listed the a bunch of the things that they have like a wing at the Louvre Museum in Paris or wherever and Metropolitan Museum of Art and a whole bunch of those and then the last line it said is we struggle to find a rehab named after Purdue Pharma <laughs> and isn't that a profound statement that they mm -hmm. you know they have all of these things that are great out there but they haven't put any money into actually treating people who have gotten very sick off you know off their illness so would be nice if Purdue Pharma put up a little bit of money and said we're gonna open up a, a drug rehab in every state in the country to help with the opiate yep. crisis that we created yep. or we start we helped to create so that's kind of where we feel today. I would ask you in closing to go check out Cooking Without Wine, which is Mr. Trevor Lachlan. Oh, we're talking uh, about MHAB now, it's MHAB, right? Cooking MHAB.org. I learned how to make a great grilled cheese sandwich last week. So if you go on, you can see how to do that. I don't know what the next one is going to be. It's chimichurri sauce. It's chimichurri, chimichurri sauce. Chimichurri sauce good. made with fresh herbs from the MHAB greenhouse. What you know that I've still never actually cooked my own grilled cheese. <laughs> <laughs> Why does that not surprise <laughs> That's me? probably not going to happen anytime soon. <laughs> Thank God soon. you have Liz. You would, be, you would <laughs> starve to death if it wasn't for oh Liz. God, I'm so lucky. <laughs> and I do believe that the next podcast is going to, I'm, I'm going to be out that day. I and I believe know. that Betsy has a couple of exciting 
guests that are very good friends of mine. Should we tell them who it is? I have two amazing women that are coming to talk to me about women in recovery and sobriety. Zadie Laughlin and Loretta Rietzema, two women that have really made, contributed so much of their heart and their life dedicated to um, both recovery and families uh, of people, um, supporting people in recovery. And these two women are just, they're amazing and they're a hoot, so we're going to have uh, a good it'll be time. A ton, yeah, I can. That's good time. That, yeah, I just I needed to opt out of that <laughs> and let that be a let that be a girl power day. So girl that'll power. be the next one, and then I don't know what we're going to do after that. But we thank you for tuning in today, and uh, thanks for joining. Hope us. you enjoyed. And and as always, if you have suggestions, please list them in the comments. We're always looking for that. And uh, thanks again. Cool. COVID out. Thanks for joining us today at Recovery Uncovered. No matter where you are in your recovery journey, or if you're supporting the recovery journey of a loved one, just know today is the first day of the rest of your life. Visit our website at mhab.org. And if you want to become an old timer in recovery, don't use and don't die. This has been Recovery Uncovered.